Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this morning, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary. 1 John 1.9 states that if we confess, which means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father in the privacy of our priesthood in silent prayer, then uh, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Such an important principle of Scripture is uh, very rarely taught today. And I was, in fact, I was visiting with a pastor last week, and he was telling me about how few people are pastors that he talks to in his area that even know what that verse refers to. So it's an, and it's an important principle. The psalmist tells us that if we regard iniquity in our heart, the word translated regard is the word for, is Hebrew word for see, which means that if we are aware of or know of sin, then uh, if we regard iniquity in our heart, then the Lord will not hear us. So if we are saved, but we commit sin, we grieve and quench the Holy Spirit, and then we are out of fellowship. So we have to uh, admit or acknowledge our sins to Him, and then we're instantly restored to fellowship. Recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that we can advance in our spiritual life. Let's begin. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you so much that we have the privilege, the freedom to gather together as a body of believers to worship you. Father, at this time when our nation is at war, when we are not only engaged in the war against terrorism, but now actively involved in the war in Iraq, when we face other threats, other international threats, we know that our security lies only in you, that no matter what we do or what we do not do, ultimately the security of this nation lies in your hands your plan and purposes for our country. Father, we pray for those who are even now fighting overseas, who are in harm's way. We pray that you would watch over them, that you would protect them, that especially those who are from this congregation who are in in that area, that you would uh, watch over and protect them, that you would return them to us safe and sound. Father, we pray for our leaders. We pray for General Franks. We pray for our president. We pray for other military leaders in the field. We pray that you would give them wisdom. We pray that they would have a clear thinking. We pray for good intelligence, and we pray that the enemy would make mistakes. Father, above all, we pray that this would be a swift war and that we would be victorious and that you would make clear what needs to be done to uh, uh, finalize events in that area and to extract ourselves in as timely a manner as possible. We thank you for the president we have, that he is a, a man who trusts in you, a man who is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a man who puts his relationship to you above even his role and responsibility as president. For that, we are, we are grateful. Now, Father, as we study your word today, we pray that we might be comforted and encouraged as we study your word, that we might uh, derive principles from your word that that encourage us in our own spiritual life, that we may use these things as we grow in advance by means of the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray these things in his name. Amen. 
Well, Friday I returned from Southern California where I had uh, been for the week, went out there last Sunday right after church in order to um, be there for su- uh, Monday where when we had uh, a board meeting for Chafer Theological Seminary. Now, everybody here should be f- pretty familiar with Chafer Seminary. Chafer Seminary was founded approximately 11 years ago. In 1992, I think, was the first year they had class. That was the result of several years of uh, talk and discussion among pastors who meet at an annual conference called the Doctrinal or, or the National uh, Teaching Pastors Conference. Now, that pastors' conference has its historical roots in pastors' conferences that were held down at Baraka Church in Houston back in the early 70s. But as years went by and they no longer hosted that conference, the pastors who uh, attended that con- that um, or came out of that church and pastors who were related to that ministry uh, desire to continue to meet together on an annual basis to encourage one another and to and usually the way it's structured is that we have different men speaking who have studied a particular area and present a paper uh, in that in that field. And so it's it's always good to hear from from a men who have spent some time giving in-depth study. And of course, we had uh, papers presented by uh, Tommy Ice was there, talked on um, the subject of stage setting and prophecy. Charlie Clough was there and talked about. Uh, dispensationalism and how that provides the only coherent uh, way to look at all of society and all of history. I did a paper on demon possession in the Christian. Uh, Bruce Bumgardner from uh, uh, Pine Valley Bible Church in Houston did a paper on the fact that obedience that is a critical factor in faith, dealing with an issue that has come up recently for discussion on just what the role of volition is in faith. And there were several others as well. On Monday, we had a meeting with the uh, board. And what's happened is over the last 10 years, as the seminary began 10 years ago, we had a sort of a loose organization. They had a, we had a board of advisors that was rather, rather informal, made up of whatever pastors happened to show up at the annual pastors conference. And we had uh, appointed Dr. Meisinger, George Meisinger, to uh, be the head of the seminary, and he has done an excellent job over the last few years. It's a tremendous challenge to start a school, and there's just a tremendous amount that needs to be done. Uh, just how do you locate faculty? How do you organize your classes, developing curriculum, uh, all of these things? Then, once you get that sort of established and finding a place to meet and getting all of your, your uh, classroom stuff set up, developing students, attracting students, and then moving from there to a f- more of a formal organization, which was what happened this last Monday, was we formally inaugurated a governing board. And the governing board at this point is made up of seven members, three of whom cannot remain on the board because of their position in relationship to the seminary. You can't have faculty or students on the board, but... We have to start somewhere, and so we need to expand the board by several members anyway. We met this last week, and we spent a lot of time developing bylaws and all of the different organizational things that you have to do, and I almost felt like I got one of those postcards or letters in the mail this last Monday saying that your friends and neighbors have uh, chosen you to serve, and I, I was reading through the minutes that Dr. Meisinger had sent me before I went out there and said that on, on uh, Monday we would be choosing a, um, a chairman of the board, a vice chairman, and a uh, secretary. And I th- that sort of went in one ear and out the other, and one eye and out the other. And then next thing I knew on Monday they we were appointing officers, and I got nominated, seconded, and elected before I could even take a breath. And I thought... There's a railroad around here. So now I am chairman of the board, governing board for Chafer Seminary. So there's a lot to do in support of the seminary, and I appreciate your prayers for that. The uh, tremendous challenge. But if we are going to have a future in this nation where there are men in the pulpit 
who were adequately trained, well trained, according to the standards of excellence, to exegete the scriptures in the original languages, men who are well trained in theology, then we have to uh, we have to develop some new seminaries, and Chafer is one of these. In the last few years, the standards that have been held by the seminaries that were the strongest in the in the 20th century are falling apart in many ways. I don't want to go into that, but the general lifespan of a seminary is usually only about 75 years. And there has been an attrition, a theological and doctrinal attrition and slippage that has occurred in those seminaries that we look to for leadership in the most of the 20th century. So it is time to replace those as they begin to drift into a broader and, in my opinion, more liberal what direction. And so that is the one reason God has raised up Chafer Seminary. And there's two or three other fledgling seminaries out there that are all, you know, 10 years old or younger. And they need a lot of prayer. And perhaps God in his grace will raise up one of those to be the standard bearer over the next uh, next century. And I think Chafer Seminary has a better chance, better potential than any of the others. And their uh, theological orientation is much tighter, much closer to what uh, we believe than Dallas Seminary probably has been in 50 years. Uh, that's not a, necessarily a criticism of Dallas, but that most seminaries are rather broad uh, to some degree, and that's p- perhaps necessary depending on the orientation of the founders in order to incorporate a certain flexibility and a certain uh, breadth of, of theological understanding. But Chafer Seminary is much tighter in many, many ways. That doesn't mean that I agree with everything that's taught there or that you would agree with everything that's taught there, but it's much closer to what we would believe. You know, Some people have gotten the idea over the years that uh, Dallas Seminary, back even when Chafer was alive, was much closer, much tighter in their theology, and it really wasn't. And um, so it was tighter than it is now, but there were many things that were taught, even in the 60s and 70s, that many of us would not agree with. So uh, it, I'm real pleased with where Chafer is, and I just hope that God allows us to grow and supply all the resources, and of course it's up to His grace to supply the students and to supply the resources. So we need to keep them in uh, in close prayer. Let's open our Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where we began last time. Now remember, we have to keep this passage, this entire section, in context. One of the greatest dangers that people have, pastors have, is taking a passage out of context. And the context here begins with the problem of idolatry back at the beginning of chapter 8 under the concept of food that had been sacrificed to idols and whether or not the believers in Corinth could partake. And the answer to that was yes, there's no necessary problem with that. That's a gray area. There's no direct instruction. However, there are weaker believers, those who are weak in conscience. And if you exercise your freedom in this area, even though it's a legitimate right, it might be the cause, the indirect cause, of a weaker believer stumbling and creating a problem in his spiritual life. Therefore, on the basis of the operation of the law of love or the law of personal sacrifice, Paul said that they needed to sometimes forego, either temporarily or permanently in their life, certain legitimate activities. Chapter 9, he used his own example of foregoing the right to be paid a salary or to be financially and logistically supported by a local congregation. And the principle there was in verse 14, even so the Lord has commanded that those who preach the gospel should live or should earn their living from the gospel. But Paul said, even though all of the other uh, apostles charged, he uses that specific terminology, charging uh, for the gospel, in verse 18, even though they they did that, even though they, they were married, He chose not to. He chose to exercise his freedom in this area and to not exercise a legitimate right. 
He used the illustration then in verse 24 from the secular races in the, at the Olympics and the games at the Isthmian Games that uh, even in the Gentile world, you understand that athletes realize they have to give up legitimate activities, legitimate uh, rights in order to gain the prize, that you have to discipline yourself. And that means at times that you, because of your pri- priority, you are willing to forego pleasurable, legitimate activities in life because they are distractions. And then in chapter 10, he moves from a positive, the positive example he derived from the Gentile community at the end of chapter 9 to a negative example related to the Jews. And he is going to demonstrate that they failed to set aside these desires. They wanted to have, as it were, almost to have their cake and eat it too. They kept wanting to go back to the slavery of Egypt. They wanted to go back to the food in Egypt. They could not uh, rely upon the uh, sufficiency of God's grace, and they complained and they grumbled all the way through the, the the wilderness. And as a result, God disciplined them severely during their time in the wilderness, and they never that generation never made it into the promised land. And that is an illustration for us of the failure of what happens in the fail when we fail in the spiritual life to focus our priorities on God's priorities. We began last time to take this part in the first uh, 13 verses, which focus on the principle and then the application derived from the Old Testament. Now, one problem we have today is that so many people are generally uh, illiterate on the Old Testament that we have to make sure that we all understand that to which Paul is referring. He not only refers to several specific instances, different instances, and weaves them together to make his point. He also quotes from a number of Old Testament passages here. So last time we began to look at the background of this and, and in Exodus chapter 14 through 16. Now we have to remember that the Old Testament provides a type. The Greek word that's translated type or example is the word tupas. T-U-P-O-S, and usually that U, that upsilon, is transliterated into English with a Y. And that is where we get the the English word uh, type. And type refers to a shadow image, a foreshadowing of some doctrinal principle. And so there are certain things, certain events, certain things, certain people in the Old Testament that God in Revelation picks up certain details from these historical events and uses them to illustrate doctrinal principles related to the person and work of Jesus Christ and the spiritual life. So Paul begins in chapter 10 by reminding us in verse 6, that these things happen to Israel as our example to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. Now that is the point of this section. However, in order to understand all that he has in mind there, we have to do some homework in the Old Testament. So the emphasis here is going to be on keeping them out of idolatry. That's where we're going in the command in verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. So let's take some time to go back, pick up a little background in the Old Testament. We'll review briefly what we covered last time and then move on. Let's go to Exodus chapter 14. Exodus chapter 14 gives us the episode of the escape through the Red Sea. Exodus chapter 14. Now, the background is that Israel, from the time of Joseph, had lived in, in Egypt. They were in, not originally slaves, but as time went by, Joseph and his descendants, who were Semites, were viewed with extreme disdain by the Egyptians. The Egyptians were extremely prejudiced, and the Egyptians did not want to have anything to do with the Semites. They considered the Semites to be a very unclean people. For example, the pharaohs did not, uh, I mean, the, the Egyptians shaved 
completely shaved their their hair. Now you'll see pictures in in archaeological digs. You'll see uh, the um, pictures that are done on the sides of the tombs where the pharaoh has a beard. But that was a if you look carefully, you'll see that there's a string there. And this was just a string that was hooked over the ears and attached. They did not have any facial hair. They shaved it off, and they considered the the um, the, the Jews to be unclean. They considered hair to be unclean and filthy, and so they, that's one of the reasons they would never eat with the Jews, for a number of other reasons they never would eat. And that's sort of the background that you see in, in uh, the, the episode when Joseph's brothers come to Egypt, he does not eat with them initially, and all the Egyptians leave the room. They won't have anything to do with these uh, Semitic Jews. So there is a tremendous prejudice in Egypt against the Jews. And finally, there is a Pharaoh, we're told, in Exodus 1, who rose up, who did not know Joseph, did not care about Joseph, and under his administration, the Jews became enslaved. And so they were in Egypt for about 400 years as slaves, and during that time, God protected them and, in his uh, providence, prospered them, and the nation grew to be a nation of about two and a half million. About two and a half million. We don't know exactly, but we do have a head count of the males that were age 20 and over. And so that was about 600,000. And if you have one wife, one female for every male age 20 and over, that gets you 1.2 million. And if you have one child, then you have 1.8 million. And if you have two children, then you're up to 2.5 million. So there may have been even more than that. But this is a tremendous crowd of people that are escaping, that have been delivered from their slavery in Egypt. And the deliverance of slavery to Egypt, the entire Exodus event, is a picture of our salvation. The, every individual is born in sin, and we are born slaves to sin. And so this is analogous in the, from the Old Testament to uh, the slavery in Egypt. And then the Passover event is a picture of redemption. As it is a picture of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then the crossing of the Reed Sea, that's the actual name in the Hebrew. It's not Red Sea. It is the Reed Sea, the Yom Suf. And that is analogous to the believer's baptism into Christ, the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, which happens at the instant of salvation. So it is these two events, the Passover, the picture of the work of Christ, and the crossing of the Reed Sea, which are a picture of salvation. So all of this emphasizes what happens at the instant of salvation and what the believer receives as what we call positional truth, everything that we have in Christ at the instant of salvation. Now, this is emphasized through the word all in this passage. We see it mentioned five times. All our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses, all ate and all drank. This emphasizes what they all had in common as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as they, the Jews escaped... As the Jews escaped from Egypt, uh, Pharaoh realized what was happening. God hardened his heart, and we see that he began to pursue the Jews. Now, last time I pointed out that Pharaoh is involved. You see Pharaoh mentioned in verse 3, verse 4, verse 9, verse 10, all the way up to verses 17 and 18. And it is Pharaoh and his army and his chariots, Pharaoh and his horsemen, Pharaoh, his chariots and his horsemen, Pharaoh and his chariots drew near. Pharaoh and his chariots pursued. It's always Pharaoh and his chariots. But in verse 18, we have the last mention of Pharaoh. And after that, it's all the only mention we have is in verse 23, Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen. But there's no mention of Pharaoh. So on that basis, I do not believe the Pharaoh was killed uh, in the drowning episode at the end of this event. So the Jews were escaping. They came up against the Reed Sea. They could not cross, 
and they were trapped because of the uh, uh, geographical features of the landscape. And then Pharaoh's army with his cracked troops and cracked charioteers came up behind them, and they began to panic. This is uh, one of the greatest problems people have in life is that they look at the circumstances of life and begin to panic, forget that God is the one who is in control. I'm going to spend some more time on this during second hour when we look at the doctrine of fear. But as I travel around the country in the last couple of weeks and talk to people, I am amazed how many people in this country are living in fear, and many believers live in fear. They're afraid to fly. They're afraid to travel. They're afraid to do anything. And when a nation operates on carnal in carnality and operates on fear, it destroys the nation from the inside out. And we can see this. Just every time you hear a report on the news about how the economy is suffering, how the airline industries are suffering, and these when the airline industries go down, we're going to see. Uh, a number of other consequences that ripple through the economy. It's amazing. I think one airline has seen its stock drop from about $32 to $1, to $1 a share. And all of that is because of the mental attitude sins of a population that has rejected God, rejected the provision of Scripture, and no longer understands that Jesus Christ controls history. And so when they are motivated by fear rather than showing courage and stepping out uh, and trusting God for their security and their safety, they end up not traveling, they end up not spending their money, and all of this has a cumul cumulative and destructive effect on the nation. Well, this is what happens when Pharaoh traps the Jews. They are very afraid in verse 10, and they begin to cry out to the Lord. And then they begin to blame Moses for all their troubles. Now, this is going to just set the example for everything in this generation, and it's very typical of the generation in which we live. We can find a lot of negative examples from the uh, Exodus generation that apply to the present generation in America. We refuse to trust God, and we're always blaming somebody else for our troubles. We have taken victimization to new heights, and it's no longer my fault when I do something. It's always somebody else's fault. And once again, that's a sign of arrogance. That is a sign of, of uh, instability and carnality. And one side product of that is we're destroying the legal system here because everybody wants to blame somebody else and get paid for it. So they uh, stack the courts with all sorts of illegitimate lawsuits. Well, the, the Jews cry out to Moses, and God is going to deliver them. And the principle of uh, that you should remember whenever you are afraid is given in verse 13. Moses said to the people, Do not be afraid. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. Salvation and deliverance always comes for the Lord, verse 14, the Lord will fight for you, and he shall hold your peace. Whenever we are tempted to be afraid, whenever we are tempted to worry, to be anxious, whenever we are tempted to take things into our own hands, we need to learn to relax and put the problem, put the situation, put the difficulty in the Lord's hands. So <clears throat> Moses tells them to relax, and then the, he delivers them beginning in verse 19. And there we see the protection of the Lord. We looked at last time, the angel of God who went before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them, and the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. Last time we saw that this cloud, which is mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 10, where we read that all our fathers were under the cloud, this was not a normal cloud. This is a unique cloud, the only cloud of its kind in history. It was a pillar cloud, and you can study meteorology all day long, and you'll study about uh, nimbus clouds and cumulus clouds and cirrus clouds, but you'll never study about a pillar cloud. This is a one-of-a-kind cloud, and during the day it was a cloud, and at night it was a pillar of fire. And this reflected the glory of God as it moved through the wilderness leading and the desert leading the Jews. And now it takes up a position of protection between the Egyptians 
and the Jews. It's a cloud and darkness to the Egyptians, verse 20, and it gave light at night to the Jews. And during this time, there's a strong, God sent a strong east wind. He drove the sea back so that it was dry land, and the Jews escaped through that dry land. And then, of course, most of you are familiar with the story that God stopped the wind just as the Pharaoh's army was pursuing the Jews, and they were in between that, those mighty walls of water. And the waters came down and covered the chariots and destroyed and drowned all of Pharaoh's army. And then we have the conclusion in verse 30 and 31. Thus the Lord saved Israel. And here the word is Yasha, which is the Hebrew word for salvation, which is the same word that's the base for the name of Jesus. It's the word Yeshua, the noun form, or the deliverer, or the savior. Then the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. See, that's added, that's put in there for information that this wasn't something that just just happened, that they saw the dead Egyptians. God wants us to have good empirical information about what actually happened. As a result of this, verse 31, when Israel saw the great power which Yahweh had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And here the term feared the Lord is related to and synonymous with the following phrase, they believed in the Lord. And in many passages, the concept of fearing the Lord is an idiom for salvation, for trusting in the Lord for salvation. And it is at this point that most of the Jews, if they were not already saved and not already trusted in God as their Savior, it is at this point that they do. So we had, from verse 31 of chapter 14 on, we are dealing with a nation that is made up of primarily born-again believers. They are one of the most screwed-up generations in all of history. And as we saw last time in Psalm 78, they become a paradigm throughout all of rabbinic literature for the worst that the nation can be. They complain and gripe all the way through uh, their deliverance, so much so that they are, as we will see, they are uh, prohibited from ever experiencing the full blessing of God and entering in to the uh, land that God had promised them, the land of Canaan. But it is at this point that they pass, they, they are under the cloud, the, as God is their protector, God is their guide and, and the one directing them, and they pass through the Red Sea. Now back in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, 1, don't leave Exodus, but just referencing 1 Corinthians 10, 1, Paul said, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be ignorant that all our fathers were under the cloud, and all, and here he leaves out fathers, but he's still referring to them, all passed through the sea. And then in verse 2 he says, All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now here we have to take some time to do some technical, uh, a technical look at the Greek. All were baptized. This is the Greek word bapto, which means to, or baptizo, from the root bapto, meaning to dip, plunge, or immerse. But it signified identification. When you think of baptism, you need to always think of identification. Its significance isn't just immersion. The immersion was always to picture something, and it did not always involve actual physical immersion. We have talked about the fact that there were eight baptisms in Scripture. There were three ritual baptisms. These involved uh, getting a person wet. There was the baptism of John the Baptist where the Jews were baptized or identified with repentance in the kingdom of God. That's what they were identified with. Uh, they were immersed in water, but it was for the purpose of identifying them with the kingdom of God because they had repented. Then there's the baptism of Jesus. That was not the same, even though John the Baptist performed that baptism. It was not the same baptism. He was not a sinner. He was not baptized for repentance. He was baptized to show that he was identified with the Father's plan. And then the third ritual baptism or wet baptism is believer's baptism, which pictures our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. There is nothing wrong with water baptism. 
Water baptism is clearly taught in Scripture, but you have to make sure that you don't think that something actually happens to you. It is simply a testimony and a symbolic representation of what takes place at the instant of salvation when we are baptized by means of God the Holy Spirit and placed in identification with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection and placed in the body of Christ. This represents then our position in Christ and all that we have in Christ. Now in the Old Testament what happened is you had a baptism into Moses. You had also had a baptism into Noah. That's referenced in 1 Peter chapter 3. And here we have a baptism into Moses. The two other, are, uh, other baptisms in the Old Testament or three other baptisms that we, we studied are the baptism of the cross, where Christ is identified with our sins, and the baptism of fire and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Those are all dry baptisms. Water is involved in the baptism with Noah and the baptism with Moses, but the people who get wet are people who are killed. They are not identified with anything other than death. It is those who were dry, the Jews who walked through the Red Sea that are identified with Moses as their leader and Moses' faith and trust in the Lord. So they are baptized into Moses. That's expressed in the Greek by a particular kind of construction. This is indicated by the preposition ace, E-I-S, which always indicates the new state into which The person is identified. For example, in, with John the Baptist, the person who was baptized was identified unto repentance, ace, metanoeo. In the church age, we are identified and placed into the body of Christ, 1 Corinthians uh, twelve thirteen. But the means by which this accomplished is not, in, is not expressed through an ace preposition, but through the preposition in, in the Greek en. This expresses the instrument that is used. So that John the Baptist said that, that he baptized by means of water. But the one who came after him would baptize by means of the Holy Spirit and fire. So that the Holy Spirit is then analogous to water as the means by which this identification is accomplished. In the Old Testament, it was the cloud and the sea that were the means by which the Jews were identified with Moses. So when we come to Exodus, I mean First Corinthians chapter 10, verse 2, we indicate that as they cross the Red Sea under the protection of the cloud, they are, that those two things are used to identify them with Moses and his deliverance. So from this point on, they are a nation made up of believers. Now, as they, after they cross the Red Sea, now they have a problem. They are no longer pressed from behind, but now you have somewhere between 2 and 3 million Jews making their way through desert territory around the uh, Sinai Peninsula somewhere. We're not exactly sure where Mount Sinai actually exists, but it is in the uh, wilderness of Sin. In chapter 17, verse 1, we see the introduction of the problem with um, with water. Now in chapter 16, chapter 16 we have the introduction of a substance called manna. That's how most people pronounce it. It actually should be pronounced manna. Now this is, two things are going to be introduced in, in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. That is the bread and the water. Now, we almost think when you think of bread and water, you almost thought it was going to say bread and wine. See, Paul is already focusing on bread and water here 
and is using it subtly to, as foreshadowing of where he's going. By the end of the chapter, we're going to be into the, the uh, communion table, and by chapter 11, we're going to be into the communion table. So there's just kind of a, a, an interesting word play that Paul is introducing here that, that foreshadows. It just shows the depth and complexity of the Scripture as tremendous literature. But in chapter, in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 10, we read that they all ate the same spiritual food. Now, the term spiritual, as it's used in verse 3, just indicates that this has a supernatural origin. A supernatural origin. To understand this, we have to go back again into the Old Testament to see, to understand how God supplied the nourishment needs, the logistical needs of these two and a half to three million Jews as they went through the desert. So we begin in verse 1 of chapter 16. Now the Jews had been rescued by the Lord at the Red Sea, and then as they began to travel through the wilderness, they had problems with water. They were three days into the wilderness. This is just, I just want to back up and pick up the context at the end of verse, at the end of chapter 15 that they uh, came to a place that was called Marah, which because the waters were bitter. So there was water there and apparently enough water to take care of the water needs for this huge crowd of people. So God provides and by telling uh, Moses to cast a tree into the waters and that that would then uh, clear up the water and it would be it was apparently alkaloid, and by putting the tree in the water, God was just showing that that was a visible expression of faith in him. It was not some sort of scientific thing that the water somehow sweetened the water. It was just a sign that, that Moses was doing what God said to do, and at that point, the waters were sweetened, and this provided sustenance for the people. But they had a problem with food. You can well imagine what it would take to feed a large number of people like this as they go through the desert. Verse 1 of chapter 16, They journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin. This is not the wilderness of sin. It may look that way in your your uh, old King James, but this is not the wilderness where sin took place. This is pronounced Sin in the Hebrew. They came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after the, they departed from the land of Egypt. See, Sin is the root of the word that you find in Mount Sinai, how most people pronounce it, but the accent's on the second syllable, and it should be pronounced Sinai. The children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat and we ate bread to the full. Food becomes a major testing point for the Jews. From the beginning to the end, this generation complains about the food in the wilderness. In other words, they complain about God's ability to take care of them. They're never happy with God's grace provision. So they begin to complain and grumble and moan about the fact that they don't have food and they don't have the wonderful food they had back in Egypt. But God is going to give them a miraculous provision. This is explained in verse 4. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall, shall go out and gather a certain quota every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So here we have our first word here to test, nasa, meaning to test or to try, evaluate. It does not mean to tempt. I think the old King James translated it tempt. Tempt has the idea of enticing someone to sin. This is the idea that is roughly a parallel to the New Testament word we've studied in relationship to the judgment seat of Christ, dokimazo, meaning to evaluate. It's a positive thing in order to uh, demonstrate their faith, to give them an opportunity to demonstrate what they have learned and the way they trust in the Lord. Of course, they have various problems. Now, here we have a map of the Sinai Peninsula. If we 
Look here in the upper uh, left-hand corner. This is the area of Egypt where they left, and these various black lines that are on here represent various routes that scholars think the the Jews took. We're not exactly sure what their route was. It was probably this southernmost route is the most most likely, but it was the traditional Mount Sinai is down here in the lower part of the peninsula, but there are a number of problems with that as the uh, as the actual site. So they probably, from people I've read and studied on this issue, it would pro- the most likely routes are this middle line that goes across from east to we- from west to east here, or the southern route. Those are the most likely routes. But as you can see, this is a large, long distance to travel. In the desert, word wilderness, it's translated through here, should be translated and understood to be desert. So that God is now going to provide for them with a miracle bread. Verse 7, In the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, for he hears them complain against the Lord. Now this word complain is a word that is used over and over again in this section of Exodus and numbers. In fact, it's used uh, a, n- a number of times. It's used over over 25 times in just Exodus and Numbers. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. And it is the Hebrew word loon, which means to murmur against, to murmur against. And they uh, continuously murmured or griped or complained against God or against Aaron or against Moses. But this generation was never happy. They didn't have the capacity for happiness because they didn't have any doctrine in the soul. They rejected God's provision, and this is illustrated through their rejection of his provision of physical sustenance in terms of manna. Now, to understand the significance of manna as a type or as an example, we have to understand what actually happened historically. And each morning, God would bring with the dew this unique supernatural bread, this spiritual bread. And the Lord told the um, Jews that in the morning they would bring... um, this bread, and this bread would come with the dew. Now, they were unhappy with that, and so God also promised, and this is the first example of his providing quails. This is the positive example, and God provided a a miracle provision through these quail that flew up into the area. Down in verse 12, I've heard the, uh, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, I have heard the complaints of the children of Israel. Speak to them, saying, At twilight you shall eat meat, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread, and you shall know that I am Yahweh your God. So it was that quails came up at evening and covered the camp, and in the morning the dew lay all around the camp. And when the layer of dew lifted, there was on the surface of the wilderness or on the surface of the desert a small round substance, as fine as frost on the ground, so that when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Now, when they said, what is it, they are at, in Hebrew, they are asking the question, man who? What is it? It became known as manna, or what it is. They didn't know what it was. They had no idea, never seen anything like it. This is a unique substance in the history of mankind. It was a, a supernatural, miraculous provision of bread that appeared every single morning. Now, God also provided the quail... Here's a picture of what happens even today in the desert. These are nets on the on the left side that the Arabs will put up between the palm trees in order to catch these quail as they fly into the area. So this is an area where the quail are extremely populous, and they will come in during the spring and the fall, and they will be captured in these nets for food. But the miracle is the amount, as we will see, that the Lord provides. Now, there's certain rules and regulations regarding the manna. First of all, in verse 16, we read that every man was to gather it according to each one's need. They weren't to take, uh, just go out and gorge because there would be a problem. If they took more than they would need for the day and they just 
they ate all of it, but they still had some left over, and they were going to hoard it for the next day. Then the next morning, it would be rotten, and there would be uh, worms in it, and it would putrefy, and that's described in verse 20. If they, uh, but, but in terms of the need, it was always sufficient. Verse 16, they were to gather it according to each one's need, one omer for each person, according to the number of persons that is in each household. Let every man take for those who are in his tent. Then the children of Israel did so and gathered some more, some less. That Some took an overabundance, some did not. But it was always enough. Verse 18, when they measured it by omers, he who gathered much had nothing left over. He who gathered little had no lack. Now, this is not talking about the person who was hoarding three or four days' supply, but some people who were taking a day's supply would take a little more than others. Some would take a little less, but it was always enough. If one family took a little more, you would think, well, they would just be stuffed, but it was just right. Another family took a little less. They weren't quite as as, uh, generous in how much they picked up. And they went back, and they didn't have a full bowl full, but it was enough. See, the Word of God is always sufficient, as we will see that that is what this is analogous to. But Moses said in verse 19, Let no one leave any of the manna until morning. So they weren't to leave it there. It would come with the dew at the dawn, but they weren't to leave it until the sun came up. Once the heat of the sun came, then the manna, if there was any left over, then it would evaporate and it would be gone. However, if they went out at dawn, they woke up early. Those of you who aren't morning people wouldn't like this. If you got up at the dawn, 5 a.m., and went out and gathered your manna, and you took it into your tent, and then you went back to sleep, then if you woke up around 9 or 10 in the morning, you would still have manna. But if you left it out there and didn't get up and go out and gather it at the right time, then it would be gone by the time you uh, finally got out of bed. Verse 21, So they gathered it every morning, every man according to his need, and when the sun became hot, it melted. Now the other principle with the manna was that they were to gather it every day but on the Sabbath. On the Sabbath they were not to gather any manna, and on the day before the Sabbath they would go out and gather twice as much. They would gather enough for Friday, and then they would gather enough for Saturday. And that was the only day that the manna would not, the extra manna would not rot or putrefy overnight. And then there was another amount of manna that was placed inside uh, a container and put inside the Ark of the Covenant. And that manna never putrefied or rotted. So you can see that there was a certain supernatural element involved in the principle of manna. Now the principle, the spiritual principle, the application of manna for us is that this relates to the study of the Word of God. The manna provided the physical nourishment for Israel during the time they were in the desert. For 40 years, they lived on this manna. Day in and day out, it was the same meal. Now, the application of this for the church today is phenomenal. First of all, we have to recognize that manna represents the Word of God, the spiritual nourishment that God provides. And it has a different reaction in people. To some people, it tastes wonderful, and to other people, it does not taste as as good. And this leads to the basic problem that we find in Israel, and that is the problem of ingratitude and rebellion. See, what happened is that it might have been great that first day. They had been three days and three nights in the in the wilderness, and now they're they're, they come to uh, uh, Merah, and they're thirsty, and they're hungry, and they get quail, and they get manna, and they fill themselves up, and this was a great meal. Then the next day morning, they got up, and it was the same thing. Well, that was fine. They were still a little hungry. And then the third day, they got up, and it was the same thing. Day after day after day. Well, after about six weeks, this got 
well, wait a minute, maybe we should... You remember those wonderful uh, pies we used to have back in Egypt, those meat pies with the onion and the garlic and the lasagna that we ate and all the, the, the pizza that we had and, and all of the wonderful food that we enjoyed back when we were... We were and now what we get is, is the same thing day after day after day, this little uh, this manna that tastes like a coriander seed, and we're tired of it. See, they got bored with God's grace provision. And this is exactly what happens to so many believers today. You see it again and again and again. They go through some crisis in their life, and they want God to rescue them. They end up going to church. Maybe they'll end up somewhere where they're taught a little doctrine. But if they go to a church where doctrine is emphasized, sometimes it gets boring. We don't have a dog and pony show like a lot of churches do where they have a choir that sings a bunch of songs, musicians, and all kinds of distractions and all kinds of entertainment. It's just teaching the Word. It's just basic spiritual meat and potatoes day in and day out because that's what, that's what provides spiritual growth. But most believers in this nation have rejected that. It's boring. They want this thing. They want entertainment. They want uh, all kinds of different programs for their children, for everything else. They want everything except the sound, solid, day in, day out teaching of the Word of God. And that is part of the lesson that we learned from the Exodus generation is that they uh, they wanted to complain about what God provided for them and they rejected everything that God had given them and complained about it. Many people in, our, in, in the Christian world think that they love the Lord. They talk about it all the time and they get all emotional about it and talk about how they love Jesus and sing, oh, how they love Jesus, but they don't know the Bible. The level of ignorance, just in terms of basic biblical literacy that is around today, is incredible. But the Scripture says that you can't love the Lord unless you know the Lord, and the sign of knowing, or the sign of loving the Lord, is keeping His commandments. But you can't keep His commandments unless you know His commandments, and you can't know His commandments unless you're willing to make it a priority and to discipline yourself to be in Bible class day in and day out, listen to tapes, so that your your mind is being renewed and refreshed by the Word of God. Jesus said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is a quote in Matthew 4.4, 4 quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, which relates specifically to the manna incident, where Moses reminds the uh, generation that is about to go into the land what had taken place with their rebellious fathers. In Deuteronomy 8.3, he reminds them, he humbled you, that is, God humbled you and let you be hungry, and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone. That was the principle, that man does not live by bread alone. Get your mind off of your physical stimulation, your physical desires and lust patterns, and put your emphasis on the spiritual food that God provides. Man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So the first principle is that manna represents the Word of God, the spiritual nourishment God provides. Second principle, manna spoiled overnight except in the ark. The manna that, you, that was gathered spoiled overnight except the manna that was in the ark. The manna in the ark represents positional truth. It represents our eternal security. It is a memorial to God's sustenance and God's faithfulness, and it was always the same. It was not subject to deterioration. But the manna that was gathered on a daily basis represents our ongoing sanctification. See, positional truth is our positional sanctification. But that day-to-day gathering of the manna was the day-to-day taking in of the Word of God. Just as the Jews had to get up every day and go out and take in uh, physical nourishment for the day, so we are to get up every day and take in spiritual nourishment through the study of God's Word. Third point, God's provision of manna was sufficient. It met the need. Whatever the need was, if they didn't gather quite enough, it was sufficient. If they gathered too much, it was 
sufficient. The Word of God is always sufficient. This is one of the most critical doctrines that is being rejected today. We want to go to sociology. We want to go to psychology. We want to go to all these other disciplines to try to figure out how to make life work when the Scripture says that God has given us everything necessary for life and godliness. We don't need anything else. The Bible claims that if we learn the Word of God and we apply its principles consistently in our life, that no matter what problems you may face in life, whether they're emotional problems, whether they're addictions, whatever the problems may be, marriage problems, financial problems, the Word of God gives us the principles that we need to face and handle any adversity in life. And even if that adversity doesn't disappear, and it probably won't, the Bible gives us the resources so that we can live and stay under. Hupomenes is a Greek word we studied related to endurance. We can stay under that pressure and still have happiness and stability because God sustains us in the midst of difficulty. So God's provision of manna was sufficient, indicates that his word is always sufficient. We don't need to look to the uh, emotional stimulation that most people are looking to or looking for in church in order to have uh, happiness and stability in life. Fourth point, the manna that was kept overnight was a sign of reliance on yesterday's success. See, so many of us, as we grow in believers, we begin to live on yesterday's victories. We begin to think that because we had doctrine yesterday and had doctrine the year before, that somehow that will get us through in the future. And so people often get to a point where they uh, begin to just relax and, and rest on what they've already learned. And, soon, and that is nothing more than arrogance and pride, and it leads to disaster. Every day until the day we go to be with the Lord, we need to take in the Word of God. We need to endure. We need to abide in Christ. Point number five, the manna was provided every morning except on the Sabbath. Notice there were strict rules and regulations related to taking in the manna. In the same way, there are strict rules and regulations related to the Word of God, that we are to take in the Word of God under the filling of the Holy Spirit and walking by means of the Holy Spirit. We are to apply the Word of God regularly in our lives as we learn it. Point number six, the ungathered manna disappeared in the sun. The sun was a picture of the heat of adversity. The gathered manna sustained the individual in the tent. It provided nourishment. That which was left could not be, it was too late to collect it once the sun came up. And the principle is, it's too late to learn doctrine once the adversity hits in your life. You need to already have that doctrine in your soul so that you can use it. If you wait for the difficult times and the adversity to come, it's too late. You have to have the Word of God there to strengthen your soul before you hit the adversity. And then the seventh point is that the manna was provided for all. Everyone had equal opportunity to go out and to collect manna. In the same way, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit are provided by all, whether they're carnal believers or spiritual believers. But unfortunately, only a few really take advantage of the Word of God and appreciate the Word of God. Even though many, many of the Jews went out and they collected the manna, they complained and they griped the whole time about God's grace provision. As a result of that, God would eventually discipline them. Hold, turn from our example in Exodus chapter 16 over to Numbers 11. Numbers 11 is the, uh, relates for us the second example of God's provision of meat. Again, this chapter focuses on God's continuing provision of manna in the first 15 verses. And then we come down to God's provision of meat. The people continued to complain as they went through uh, the wilderness, and so God provided quail for them again, but as discipline. There's an old African proverb that says, Be careful what you pray for. When the gods want revenge, they give you what you pray for. And this is exactly what happened. The people were out of fellowship. 
They were rejecting God's provision of manna. And so God said, you want something else? I'm going to give it to you until it comes out your nostrils, until you're sick of it, until it destroys you. And so he brought quail again, in verse 31, a wind went out from the Lord, and it brought quail from the sea, and left them fluttering near the camp about a day's journey from one side to the other. So in order to get to the quail, they had to walk through God's grace provision of manna, which shows that they were ungrateful and they rejected God's grace grace provision uh, from the beginning. So they go out, and on this, this, this provision of manna, covers an area, a huge area that could be as much as 400 square miles. It's said to be covered uh, an area about a day's journey from one side to the other, about a distance of about 12 to 15 miles. And these quail came up, and they were all around the camp and about two cubits above the surface of the ground. This means that as the quail came and were killed, they, 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 the bodies of the quail just piled up about three feet high uh, above the ground. So there was more than enough. There was an overabundance, and the people just ran around. Just get this picture in your mind. You have two and a half million Jews running around the wilderness with their nets and with stri- sticks or whatever they were using to kill these quail, and they're just absolutely going crazy trying to kill all of these quail, and then they were, uh, in all of their gluttony, they were probably eating them raw. They were just grabbing them. They wanted something else to eat. And then they were building fires, and they stayed up all night, verse 32, and all the next day and gathered the quail. Uh, He who gathered the least gathered ten homers. And when they gathered uh, ten homers, this was approximately 38 uh, to 65, depending on how they, they weighed it, from 38 to 65 bushels of quail meat for each individual. This is just raw gluttony and lust. And while they were eating it, then God disciplined them. The wrath of the Lord, which is a term for the judgment of God and his discipline, was aroused against the people, and the Lord struck the people with a very great plague. So they called the name of that place Kibroth Hata'avah, because they buried the people who had yielded to craving. They, the word there for craving is a very strong word for their, uh, for their gluttony and their lust. They could not control it, and they completely rejected God's grace provision and gave in to the lust of the sin nature in order to satisfy their own need. Now, the lesson for this is a lesson to the Corinthians and to us that we are not to reject God's grace provision, but we are to keep our focus on the Lord. And we'll come back and see how that directly relates in our study next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to study these examples from the Old Testament. Be reminded that everything that we have is from you. Everything that we've been provided spiritually is from you and that you have provided us with your word. You have given us everything we need for our spiritual life and for the pursuit of spiritual maturity. Yet too often we are either ungrateful and we don't take advantage of what is given or too often we uh, just try to find something else. It's not enough just to study your word. There must be some sort of emotional or psychological stimulation to go along with it. But your word clearly teaches that it is your word and your word alone that is the source of our spiritual nutrition and our spiritual growth. And the only way to take advantage of it is to make the study of your word the number one priority in our life. You have provided everything for us. This begins at the cross. It is at the cross where Jesus Christ paid the penalty for our sins. Because he paid the penalty for our sins, we can have eternal life. Perhaps you're here this morning and you're unsure if you have eternal life. You're uncertain of your eternal destiny. But the Word of God says that you can be sure and certain of eternal life and an eternity in heaven by putting your faith alone in Christ alone, simply by believing, trusting in his death on the cross as your substitute, God gives you eternal life, not because of what you have done, but because of what Christ has done. It's not a matter of works. It's not a matter of making a bargain with God. It's not a matter of moral reformation or doing good. The issue is clear. It is only faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.